What's your point? My point is that as long as people like you and me don't stop talking, nobody can stop the USA. Yeah. But right. that's right. not what yes, I am talking about yeah. freedom, mm -hmm. about choice. America, I don't think you need to worry. Because if you want to beat China, you will. If you don't, that's fine. That, my friend, is your victory. Welcome to Ricochet's Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute, The Week Magazine, and CNBC. Each week, the podcast features a lively conversation with top thinkers and doers on the most important and interesting economic and policy issues of our time. Archived episodes can be found at ricochet.com and follow-up blog posts and transcripts at aei.org. My guest today is Michael Auslan, who is resident scholar and director of Japan Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in Asian, Asian regional security and political issues. And we're going to talk to him today uh, about his new book, uh, The End of the Asian Century. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, just so no one's confused, uh, we're going to call him Misha, which is his uh, nickname here at AI, where he is my uh, colleague. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. All right, so we're going to talk about Asia. And um, in the very first chapter, you write, because the world has focused on Asia's successes, even knowledgeable observers are unlikely to have a comprehensive view of the various risks Asia faces and how they're intertwined. Thus, many predictions are misleadingly rosy. Now, when I read that, I immediately thought of, and I think this was during the, maybe the, mid, the, pre, the midterms, maybe the 2014 midterms, there was this ad. It was called, I think, I think it was called the Chinese Professor ad. It was supposed to be an ad about maybe five, ten years in the future, and it was a Chinese professor speaking to a group of students and talking about how America has collapsed and, and failed, and they're all kind of laughing. So it was about sort of American trouble, but it was also a, a, an ad about how ascendant Asia is, or in particular, China. So I think when most people think about Asia, they think of fast economic growth, a region on the rise. Everything, everything seems to be – the wind is at the, uh, the backs of Asia. They don't, think about the, they don't think about the risks. So first of all, why do we have that sort of not realistic view uh, of this region? First, I think it's, it's been a very realistic view. Um, Asia in our lifetime has modernized and become so more important to the global economy, global politics and the like than was even conceivable, say, a generation and a half ago or, or 50 years ago, that we were right to celebrate what the individual countries had accomplished. So you start with Japan in the post-war period, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, you move to the Four Tigers, South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore and the like. And then, of course, China has really been the story for the past 25 years. Uh, but as we were celebrating what seemed to be a relentless rise upward, uh, modernization, wealth creation, in many cases, democratization, what we weren't doing was looking at the, the problems that remained. 
Uh, we had one story. It was the story that made the news, and it's why many people started calling this the Asian century or what the 21st century would be was the Asian century. Um, that's why I titled this book The End of the Asian Century right. uh, in, in two senses. Uh, the first sense being that Asia faces real risks and real problems from economics to demographics and, and politics and security that have been ignored or pushed under the carpet while it has focused and we have focused solely on the, on the economic uh, growth story. And the second way in which I wanted to title at the end of the Asian century was the end of our own perception of uh, what this coming decade, two decades, three decades would be, uh, and that instead of celebrating a strong Asia in our own minds, we would begin to become aware of, think about, and try to plan for dealing with Asia's problems. And so it, it's not a, a book of predictions, and it's not to say that Asia hasn't developed, but it's to say, here's the rest of the story. Right. And when you talk to uh, policymakers, folks on Capitol Hill, what what is their perception uh, of of the region is it is it is it sort of as I described that you know everything seems to be going right for Asia or is it more nuanced? Well, I would say it's becoming more nuanced. I started the book. I started doing the research for the book in about 2010, and back then there was no South China Sea issue. There was no worry about the Chinese stock market. the The real issue of corruption hadn't broken through to the headlines, so everyone had. That first view that you mentioned, everybody thought that this growing at ten percent a year. I think they were still forever. In, were they still, I think they're still double digit growth. They were at double digit. China was at double digit growth. India was close to double digit growth. Right. Obviously, Japan was in the doldrums, but right. it was still very rich. Everyone thought, look, if you look at the Middle East, you compare it to the Middle East, you compare it to Europe, you compare it to Africa. Asia is still the region that lays the golden egg. Right. Now, in 2017, in less than a decade, I think a lot of that. Common wisdom has begun to change. Uh, it's why I think the the timing for the book just worked out, you know, providentially well. That starting in the summer of 2015, with the collapse of the Chinese stock market, everybody went, "Whoa, that wasn't supposed to happen." What does that mean? What what's going on here? And suddenly, they began to think about Chinese debt. In the South China Sea, you have warnings of war between Beijing and Washington. Uh, you have rampant corruption. You have political dissatisfaction, the, the South Korean president just being hounded out of office. So now I think people are beginning to get a, a slightly more nuanced view, but the dominant narrative is still that Asia is the land of riches and people aren't paying attention to the risks it faces. Right. So we still think of it as a very dynamic place. It is. Partic right. Particularly if you think about Europe, which seems to be you know, a stagnant region, then you obviously look at Asia, you see all, you know, still, still very dynamic uh, right. economies. Before we get into to the, to the risks and perhaps how they, they play out, you evoke the, the concept of sort of Asianness. As 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 a as a not completely understood phenomenon, what what is Asianness? What do we need to understand about that? Well, it is a uh, first of all, it's a very contested idea. What is it? What is Asia? What's not Asia? I, I define Asia as India eastward to Japan. Right. So that's India, China, Southeast Asia, Korea, Japan, even even Far Eastern Russia. Um, it's a great dynamic arc that sweeps right. upward. Usually we teach Asia. It's how I taught it at Yale and it's how most universities do it or the U.S. government does it. They divide it up, right? It's East Asia, it's South right. Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. Um, very few parts of government or universities look at it as a whole. Uh, and, and it's a it's a controversial concept. I mean really is uh, is Buddhist India and Buddhist Confucian China the same as Muslim Indonesia? I mean, do, can you actually put them in the same basket? 
I think they can, certainly from an American perspective, because it is it is a region linked by its waterways. Uh, as much as it's continental, it's linked by the waterways, and that's how we approach it. So for Americans, I think that makes sense. What you also see, though, to this point directly about Asianness is that um, the Asians are beginning to think of themselves more as an integrated whole and a region, and they're talking about common problems. And, and it really does sort of peter out right when you get to India's western borders. That becomes more the Middle East. Mm-hmm. It's a different set of issues. Uh, India straddles that. But I think there is a common sense, a growing common sense of identity, though not necessarily a growing common sense of working together. And if, if, and if the various countries in the region are starting to think of themselves more as sort of a region that needs to, they need to talk to each other, they perhaps they need to work together, is that just purely driven by sort of you know, their ascendancy and becoming more economically powerful? Uh, or is it also at all linked to how, how their relations with the United States are? That, that, are we not paying enough attention to them? Do they worry that – that that our that our pivot to the Pacific and Asia that that's not working very well. Now we're withdrawing from you know, the uh, Pacific trade deal. So what role does the U.S. have to play in sort of how that region thinks of itself? Well, it's a, it's a huge question. It's a good question. Um, I think in part. Asians have started to think of themselves as Asians because of the modernization that has swept through the region. They see these common uh, – these commonalities between them, the fact that you've grown a middle class, that in many cases you have more representative government, uh, certainly that you trade more with each other and you trade with the world. And, they, and when they see it happening in many cases with their neighbors, they they understand that that it is something that's shared amongst them. They don't certainly don't think of themselves as Europeans or Africans, but they do say, look, this is something that has happened in Asia over the past, let's say, three or four decades. Um, the role of the United States is in in some ways it it replaces the fact that Asia does not have really a dominant country that is trusted by everyone. Now, China is, is obviously the dominant country today, but it has no real friends and allies. There's no one that wants to become Chinese. There's no one that really wants to ally with China. They want to trade with China and make as much money off of it as they can. But, but, but trusting China and becoming a partner is a very different story. Same thing with India and Japan. So you have the three largest nations in Asia essentially friendless. Um, Japan's worked a lot to change that over the past Several years, I think it's making inroads, but they don't have none of them have allies. None of them have real relations of trust with their neighbors. So then the United States comes in. It's been there for seventy years. We've been there for seventy years as an alliance partner to five of those nations, as a uh, as an, uh, a regular partner in in economic and political ways to many more. And because we're not geographically part of the region, there is a way in which they can see us as an honest broker. Uh, and as someone who uh, can be more trustworthy because it's it's impossible in a sense for us to be to be trying to take over territory. It just doesn't work. Whereas India, China, Japan, they all have contested territorial relations with their neighbors. Now, what I like about the book is that you sort of try to map uh, the various risks and challenges uh, to the region. You highlight sort of five risk regions. You have the uh, the threat or the end of economic growth and the failure of reform. You have demographics. Uh, sort of unfinished uh, democratic revolutions and a lack of sort of just you know you know political togetherness among the nations and, and war. Let's just let's tick off a couple and maybe see how they play. Uh, we earlier you mentioned like probably maybe some of the problems in the South China Sea. So is this a a nation? I mean, they some of these countries have fought each other uh, in the past numerous times. Is this a, is this going to be a region of peace over the next twenty or thirty years? I think that the single greatest. Uh, conundrum for the West and for us in thinking about Asia is that what we see happening today, especially in the security sphere but also in in the politics, the regional politics sphere, runs counter to our own 
narrative of modernization. What, what we've, the story we've told ourselves, basing it off of post-war Europe, is that as nations modernize, often liberalize, trade with each other, integrate with the world, they first of all form regional communities of interest because they find it useful in, in many different ways to uh, get rid of problems amongst themselves and, and often act collectively. You think of the EU and the like. Uh, and and more importantly even that they move away from war. They move away from relying on the threat of the use of force or the actual use of force to solve problems. They no longer think it makes sense to fight a world war over Alsace-Lorraine right. Right? Or, or the Pyrenees or, or anything like that. Um, that's not what we see happening in Asia today. As this region has become by comparative historical standards, phenomenally wealthy, not equally and not for everyone, but overall phenomenally wealthy. Uh, and as it has become so much more important uh, politically in the world, you think of the role of China or, or Japan or, or even India, um, it should be solving its problems. And instead, it not only has not created a functional regional community of trust and working relations, uh, we are closer to some type of armed conflict today in Asia than we were five years ago or 10 years ago, whether it's the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the Korean border, the Sino-Indian border. Collectively, this region now spends more on armaments and weaponry than anywhere else mm -hmm. on earth, any other region. Uh, and it is a one where international law has proven to be ineffective. You look at the Hague ruling and China's dismissal of it over the South China mm -hmm. Sea claims last year. And instead, you have air forces uh, and navies and sometimes even ground troops facing off uh, over contested parts of territory. It doesn't uh, – the book in, in its totality is not predictive. I'm not predicting a war or revolution or economic collapse. But it is, it is an analysis of what's happening and it, it asks the questions of why Asia unfortunately is moving closer to war rather than farther away. So you know you mentioned Europe. So, so the, then does it resemble Europe when? Does it resemble Europe in you know, before World War II, someplace in the you know, late uh, – you know, 1800s, as far as you know, these countries which have advanced, they've grown richer, yet they still fight. Right. Probably, right. Probably the 19th century and the pre-World right. War I. It's not the 1930s with the rise of, you know, dominant ideologies that are battling it out. It is, it is very much old-fashioned power politics. Uh, it is China taking territory, bits, small bits and pieces from its neighbors like the Philippines and the South China Sea or claiming, in, uh, claiming and controlling territory that, that India also claims – um, it is uh, the inability to to resolve the territorial disputes that leads to a cycle of distrust and uncertainty and ultimately instability. Uh, and again, these are nations whose greatest trade is with each other by far. And China is the biggest trade partner for all of them. And yet there there is uh, a distrust of China because of these territorial issues immediately and then secondarily because of the oppressive nature of the Communist Party in China and, and you know, just how it how it acts towards its own people gives people gives other nations pause about right. about becoming closer to it. Um, that is really driving this dynamic. And it's a problem for the United States because we have an alliance with five of these nations, because we commit to upholding freedom of navigation, uh, because we are seen at least theoretically as the guarantor, the the underwriter of regional stability. But we were always able to do that when there was no real challenger in Asia. We were able to do it through the 50s, 60s, 70s and onward because there was no one who could who could challenge our position. Today, China can challenge the position. And I think we have not yet convinced the nations of the region that we are credible, that we have a strategy and a plan for making sure that China doesn't become dominant because in their view, it is becoming dominant. Do you, do you think that, that credibility, what direction are we coming more or less credible 
Um, certainly the obvious thing that we have we have a new president who perhaps has you know, been skeptical about U.S. you know power projection and you know why do we have to get involved in things you know that maybe aren't our trouble and he seems to have a very high opinion of the brilliance uh, of China. So do you think they they're they're more or less worried right now about about the U.S. as a guarantor of of peace in the region? Well, I think it's very early in the old, in the Trump years to, to figure out whether they'll come up with a plan, whether it'll be credible and accepted. I think that uh, the, the, the news coming out of the last week or so has been good, that the president has recommitted to both the alliances with Japan and South Korea, and also good in a way that he has decided not to challenge the one China policy right off the bat without having you know full understanding of the implications of that. Instead, he's bought himself time. But we lost a lot of ground in Asia during the Obama years. And it's not because the, the Obama administration didn't try. They did try. They had a rebalance or a pivot, as they called it initially. They did a lot of small good things with a bunch of nations. But it didn't add up to anything that changed the trend lines. And I think that's really what worries the Asians is that the U.S., of course, no one doubts that at the end of the day, if you really had to have a, a knockdown, dragout fight, the United States would win. I don't think there's anyone who questions that. But it's all the territory in between that. That allows China to gain influence, to intimidate its neighbors, to get them to change their ways of doing business before the United States even gets involved where they say that you guys aren't – haven't been as serious, aren't as serious about maintaining stability and therefore uh, we're worried about the, the, the trends if China continues this quasi-mercantilist sort of machtpolitik approach to settling problems only in its own interest without trying to figure out a way of coming to common ground. Uh, one of the other threats is the is the uh, end of economic growth, failure of reform. Again, that may surprise some of the listeners who've heard about how fast some of these economies have been growing for a long, long time. But there, but there's something uh, you know called you know the middle income trap, where you have very poor countries, they grow very fast, uh, they begin to urbanize, and then the growth just kind of peters out, and they're unable to make sort of that next step up to becoming what you know an advanced economy or a very rich economy like Europe, like the United States. Poor countries have not had, have not done, been able to do that. I think the last really poor country to get rich was Japan. I'm not sure there's been. We've had another Korea. Big, or, Korea. Korea. You would yeah. Korea. So some of these other countries, do you see them breaking out of that middle income trap? And what happens if they just never really get rich? Of course, the classic thing about China is they're going to get old before they get right. rich. What if they never get rich? Right. So uh, first of all, there are always going to be elements that are rich. China has more millionaires uh, and uh, I think billionaires today, certainly millionaires than any other country on earth. Uh, so there are parts of China that are very wealthy, just as there are parts of India that are very wealthy. But uh, there are still hundreds of millions in both of those countries that live in absolute or near poverty or or barely are at a middle class level. Um, I, I think that you know if there's one area where the book really challenges the common wisdom, it's precisely in this, that Asia's golden days of economic growth are over. It doesn't mean there won't still be growth, but that the story we've told ourselves, again, about 10% growth, and if it's not Japan, it'll be China, and if not China, and uh, India, and if not India, it'll be Vietnam or somewhere right. else. There's, al there's always been another fast grower there's ready, always ready, been ready someone, to take place. Right. There's some, always been someone in line, and I think that, that that really has come to an end now. And again, it, it is the reason that we have had interest in Asia for the past 40 years, to make money. Right. And so we don't want to give up the idea that we're not going to be able to make money as quickly. But that doesn't help the Asians because you're right. If you are stuck at the middle income trap where, where China really is right now, 
um, if you haven't really achieved takeoff level uh, as the Mekong Valley nations haven't or some of the Southeast Asian nations haven't, uh, then then where do you go? Because it what what happens and why we actually literally made a map of risk in Asia, it sort of looks like a Lord of the Rings fantasy map, is that these regions uh, share borders and bleed over into each other. And so the lack of economic growth ultimately becomes a political problem. And when there's a tension uh, because of the politics and the economics, it can become a regional problem because you want to divert attention from your from your failures at home. So these these uh, as the sort of as the the mindset changes in Asia that people realize that we're not all going to become Japan or South Korea then you have a whole new set of demands pressures and problems on governments many of which do not have the capacity to resolve them or answer them and you mentioned just very briefly the demographics what i call the goldilocks dilemma either too many people or too few people in the case of china you're going to have too few people because of the one child policy even though it's been uh, it's been modified uh, but it will not become a wealthy per capita nation before that happens. And moreover, you have a government with very little capacity and no real tradition of providing public goods for its own people, providing social services and entitlements. And yet, as kinship networks in China shrink, what the Chinese have often relied on for support, they will look somewhere else for the demands for these for these types of support and they're going to look to the government and the government is not either equipped or really willing to provide it. So this is going to be the great driver over the coming generation uh, in many of these countries, including wealthy ones like Japan, where an increasing number of people are elderly and they're going to be making demands on the government. So watch the demographics. With China, what what is a reasonable expectation for American policymakers to have far as you know, an expanding zone of freedom inside China. Again, people have been sort of waiting that as the country got richer, uh, people would demand more freedom and eventually the government would give them more freedom. That seems to have sort of plateaued or stopped. I mean, I mean, I guess people have a certain zone of economic freedom, less uh, less political freedom. Will China become more free over the next 30 years? I know you said this is not a book of predictions and I'm right. asking you predictions. But, you know, certainly that is, that is just a huge question that, that would hang over any book about Asia. Right. I don't think we have to predict to be able to extrapolate from what we see today, and the answer is no. Uh, in fact, what we see today is a is a U-turn or at least a J-turn from what appeared to be potential moderate liberalization inside China, uh, the growth of civil society, the growth of NGOs, you know, the, the attempts to give it a more uh, a more internationally normed legal system and the like, uh, the growth of social media, so on and so forth, away from that. Uh, and instead, we're not going back to the Mao years. We're not going to have 50 million dead and the like. Uh, but President Xi Jinping has increasingly clamped down on, on civil society. And I think he's done so uh, in part because of the the ruler's fear and the leadership's fear of the breakdown of that social contract. And the social contract was no political freedom for economic growth. But as economic growth dissipates or moderates, and we have that's the question we really have to ask, they are, they are worried about any type of dissent and unrest being expressed. And, and what, are, what, are the what are the expectations as you see it of sort of the Chinese people or the growing Chinese middle class? I, would, I remember I, I visited China in 2011 and I was with a, you know, with a few other journalists and we we're going through the um, uh, Forbidden City and we had, a, we had a guide and we had a couple of communist party minders. They were young, they were cool, they were hip, but they were communists. And they kind of wandered off uh, for a moment, and and the and so we were just with the guide, and the guide kind of leaned into us and said, "I believe in multi-party democracy." 
And then, then quietly, then, right? Right, yeah. very quietly. I, it was more of a whisper than what I just gave. It was like tel- telepathy. <laughs> and uh, so, what what do people want? Do they do they are they assuming you know they can still have the the economic goods? Do they do they still want more democracy? And is and will it become more dissatisfied? Well, you know, there's a billion three of them, and right. so uh, the idea that we really can figure out what people want, we don't know. Right. Um, we don't know what Americans want. So. We don't know exactly. I mean, you know, are, there are apparatchiks and. China that want the system to stay as it is. There's a an influential middle class that wants its own level of freedom, but not for the peasants. There's peasants that we really have almost no understanding, we, just because we don't we don't get out there and we don't spend the time to figure out what they want, um, other than probably goods and services and and job opportunities and to be able to move to the cities. Um, look, China has never had a democracy. It, it's not like a, a lot of other nations that have had, you know, periods of democracy and then periods of autocracy. Uh, it is. It it does not mean, of course, that people don't want freedom. Certainly, freedom to make decisions that they think are in their own best interests. Uh, but certainly, something that represents a, or is is um, maybe closer to a representative democracy is just really so far outside, you know, the Chinese experience that I just don't think we can map over our templates and preferences and understand how you basically calculate the degree, uh, the desire for a degree of stability, a degree of opportunity, and yes, a degree of someone at least listening to your your demands right. versus actually allowing you to openly access them. Um, but in any case, we're moving farther away from that. Uh, and that's a danger for a regime that is very brittle, uh, I, w- I would argue, successful so far, but still brittle, and also one that really doesn't have a lot of legitimacy. It, it has authority, but but it's not beloved by the people, and only a tiny fraction of Chinese are members of the Communist Party. And uh, we've talked a lot about China. Uh, obviously, the book is about more than just China. Uh, we talked a bit about Japan. India, uh, again, uh, sort of that middle-income trap. How does it, How does India begin to sort of what are the, how are the challenges sort of different? I mean, it's a very different country. Uh, you know, they're a democracy, a lot of English speakers. Uh, it's, they seem to have a different set of problems, but yet they're unable to also, it seems, seems to me, move forward and be on a strong path to becoming a, a, a truly prosperous nation. Right. Well, with India, part of it is just the sheer size. Again, it's, you know, it's uh, over a billion people. It's soon to be the, the world's most populous country with more ethnicities than China has, more linguistic groups than China has. Um, Which also may actually – I may surprise the people that, that China's a, China is actually a very diverse oh, place. Yeah. yeah, It's not just sort of homogenous China. Right. Uh, a lot of you know dialects, languages, nationalities. But yeah, but as you say, India is – But India's, India yeah. surpasses yeah. that. Uh, and as a democracy, they've decided to go down this far more complicated and messy road of, of – uh, compromise and and liberalism and the like that makes it more difficult, as we know here, to resolve real problems. Um, you know, India occupies a, a unique uh, a unique role in that it has become vitally important in certain elements of the global economy. You think the um, the back office services that it provides or the IT services that it provides, um, but overall, its its leading companies are much smaller on a global scale than those of China or Japan or Korea or others. Uh, and and yet their small size, both numerically and in terms of, um, of actual, you know, sort of per company size, they play an outsized role in the economy. It's still a very top heavy economy and top down as well with all of the regulations, what used to be known as the license Raj in India. Right, right. Now, India has come an enormous way in 27, 26 years since the uh, the currency crisis, the current accounts crisis where they actually literally had to airlift their gold to London to get further international credits. Uh, the country was at the point of bankruptcy. 
Um, and that's when the reforms began. And so India today is, has become far more open and far more liberal. But the, the problems remain enormous. The corruption is absolutely staggering and endemic. And when you go there and, uh, and, you, and you travel and you see the poverty and you just see the sheer amount of diversity, you realize that it's, it's a little bit, as one Indian politician told me, it's a miracle we've stayed together. Right. Forget about the fact that you know we've we've actually succeeded as a democracy and that we have raised you know hundreds of millions out of poverty. It's just a miracle we've stayed together, and so I think that India will always be like that. And I have a line, sadly, uh, incorrectly quoted in the book uh, that India—I called it Argentina, but Brazil, which people called the country of the future, and it always will right, be. Right, right, right. That's what I think India will be. Um, I just sadly called it Argentina. And uh, just uh, just quickly, um, also, I mean, one one concern is uh, Korea, and people always ask this question: uh, We worry about North Korea. We worry about they have nuclear weapons. Why does China just not settle that problem? They, North Korea is highly dependent on China. People wonder why. You know, aren't what isn't China worried about North Korea having nuclear weapons? Why why are we worried uh, when we have a big ocean? But why and why does China not see, seem to be very worried about North Korea just being kind of this crazy out of control country? And why aren't they helping? you know, disarm them or help push them toward independence well, if or, they are, or unification with South Korea. Right. Well, if they are worried, uh, they're not worried enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Korea, uh, what China definitely does not want is a unified Korean peninsula. That American soldiers and right, right on the so border. They, they don't want that. Um, they've made the calculation that as unpredictable and seemingly crazy and clearly as dangerous as North Korea is, it is better to have it as both a buffer between you know, U.S. leaning South Korea and Japan and China uh, as a buffer as well as a thorn in the side of the United States. Uh, That may change at some point in time, uh, but increasingly North Korea seems out of the control of China. And you just saw the other day that North Korean agents assassinated the dictator's half-brother, Kim Jong-un's half-brother in the airport in Malaysia. Uh, they, They clearly have no compunction about carrying out assassinations in third-party states, uh, um, violating their sovereignty. This is something that has to worry Beijing because these guys are just out of control in, in certain ways. But at the same time, their calculation seems to be that it's still it's still worthwhile for them to have them uh, as a problem for us. Yeah. As we wrap up, I can't help but thinking if you, if you sat if – you, if, you if you had to sit down with President Trump and you were talking with him you know, for, you know, for a half hour and the meeting was over – what like big idea would you want him to, to to take away from that meeting? Some some either some insight or understanding when you think when you think about the region. Remember this. I w- I'd say there's at least two. Sure. The first one is uh, this is not the region of golden dreams anymore. Be prepared for an Asia that is increasingly fraught with risk. Everything as we've been talking about right. from economics to demographics to politics and security. So number one, don't presume that this is going to be a safe region. Number two, America remains the most important external player in Asia's destiny. We have a role to play uh, because of our trade, because of our alliances, because of the values that we hold. And most Asian nations want us to play a role. We can't solve their problems, but we can help. Don't think that we can't play an important role. That's why I think TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, was actually very important and we should not have gotten rid of it. It's why our alliances are important and it's why our presence is important. So number one, be prepared for a bumpy Asia. Number two, know that they want us, most of them want us to help make a positive difference and we can make a positive difference. Now come up with the policy to do it. All right. I guess it is. And Mike Awesome, thanks for coming on the podcast. We hope you're happy to Thank you very much. 
city.